Sunday evening. Uh, with me, we have some usual faces and another guest who we will get to. Uh, first up, we have Peter Ray Allison. Good evening, everyone. We have John Joe Cosgrove. Hello, everyone. And our special guest tonight, Simon Nye. Special. How nice. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Simon. Uh, for everybody who doesn't know who you are, can you tell us who you, who you are, what you do, a bit about yourself? Yes, I'm comedy. Uh, well, I'm a writer, and I uh, mainly comedy because that's the best kind of writing there is. I um, started as a translator. Oh, in fact, I started as working box offices, and then I decided I had to get a proper job, so I became a translator, um, and then eventually uh, became a novelist. I had two novels out. And a producer kindly said, uh, you know, um, you can also write TV. Don't you? There's a lot of dialogue in your novels. So um, I became a TV writer and never sort of left, really. I've done a bit of stage writing here and there, um, but um, but mainly been very happy in um, sitcoms and more latterly, as I'm too old, really, for half-hour comedy uh, drama or comedy drama. So um, and uh, and here I am. And here you are. And the uh, obviously the 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 big the, the big thing that everybody will uh, be aware of if they're not aware of your other writings would be uh, men behaving badly. Yes, and that was my first novel. Um, and uh, don't 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 rush and uh, buy it because it's not. It's very much a a work of a writer who's finding his way. And I um, but yeah, then then legendary producer Beryl Virtue, um, read the book or knew the book was out, and she said um. Have you thought of writing for TV? And uh, I hadn't really, as I say. And I, so I did. And um, yeah, I, I was first time lucky. I, I had a sort of very, sort of easy way in, really. Her um, daughter was going out with uh, Harry Enfield, and that helped get the show on air. Always the luck. Uh, <laughs> um, so, and, you know, and I did learn on the job, really. Um, so, yeah, Memory Badly was my first. And I, even though it was a, it was a, yeah, it took a couple of years, but it did become a big hit. And I, even though, even though it was a big hit, I did realise, I did think this is still, this is slightly spooky and a bit, bit lucky. So, um, so I've really only just recently, yeah, in my, in my, well, I'm 62 now. So I, I've, I thought, yeah, actually, I'm, I am a proper writer now, and I, I haven't entirely lucked my way in. Um, but um, yeah, that was that was the the 90s were remember having badly decade for me. So, um, what? Well, how how far from you writing the book? So you wrote the book in the late eighties, was it eighty nine or something like that? And yes. then Men Behaving Badly sort of exploded early nineties, ninety one, was it? Yeah, the book came I suppose came out eighty nine or something. And um yeah, it um yeah, I mean anything any show at that time with nineteen ninety one, I suppose it would have been with Harry Enfield and it was it would have been a uh, you know, kind of a, a a biggish deal. So um and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't pretty much well, he wasn't at ease really in the part and and like I say I really was had it had its moments but it wasn't really really wasn't very good and um but we we lucked our way onto a, a second series I think you know we we scraped ridiculous sort of nine million or something which seems like would get your headlines for <laughs> the biggest show on air um now but you know we had limited choices back in the 90s um so um so yeah um uh, and it was yeah, and it got better, really. You know, as the decade went on, and I and I sort of learned my craft, um, and, and did a couple of other shows that fed in, into it in terms of learning. Um, so I, um, yeah, by the end it was, um, I think it was pretty good. When you were doing, I was just gonna say, when you were doing um, Ben Badly, when you were first starting it, how much control did you have in regards to 
um, casting because uh, saying about Harry Enfield was obviously on there pretty much from day one. But going forward um, with other cast members, including Martin Clunes, how much involvement did you have to actually get these other members basically in your TV show? I was, I was, Beryl Virtue, to mention her again, is who, who's, I mean, if you don't know, is a kind of, she's still, still around and, and um, runs uh, Hartswood Films with her daughter and the rest of the people. Um, and she's utter, complete legend and was an agent, well, started as a sort of secretary to Gordon Simpson, then was a, an agent to people like Frankie Howard and Spike Milligan. And so she's very much been a writer's, she's the perfect writer's producer at a time when kind of producer meant somebody kind of did everything. Now it's slightly, I don't want to sound like an old fart here, but now there's kind of, there's always a half, I mean, literally half a dozen executive producers. There's a maybe a producer who's a bit more like a, just has to get up and be on set the whole time. is less of a creative person. She was the sole, no executive producers, one producer. And so she, um, she invited me to, you know, and the director, Martin Dennis to um, to be in all the castings, which were physical in those days. We didn't do, you know, um, remote um, castings, and and so people just came to the door, and you know, and, and I was I was I, I suppose I had a veto. I wouldn't say I had. Obviously, I'm, I I didn't know what I was doing, so I wasn't going to say. Show, and you can shut up. So I did. So I did, and it was a collegial thing. But I, but I do remember, you know, I remember saying, I don't think that, I don't think she's quite right. And so I would, um, we'd, you know, we'd come to a conclusion. But um, Martin was, Martin Clunes was, um, yeah, who, who um, was there from the beginning because he was, he'd had a, he'd done some kind of sitcoms in the, God, in the 80s, probably, you know, talk about distant history, early 90s anyway. And he, and he, but he was a great stage actor. I'd seen him in something at the Regent's Park Theatre, I think. And he was just, you know, you could tell he was charismatic and he was, rude in the right places you know and so he was um he was obviously he was straight in but the leslie ash and caroline quentin were a bit um a bit slower to cast perhaps but um but were um obviously we were lucky to have them and you got you got a few you got a few sort of on-screen moments as well i believe me in person yes yeah it's a little bit hurtful when um a director say says we're looking for um monosyllabic student was it or no it wasn't, it wasn't even monosyllabic it was Something damning in our, as part of a montage. Um, catatonic, that was what it was. Catatonic student. Um, God knows I was probably 32 at the time, so how I passed for a student. But I was, I was, yeah, I just had to sit there looking gormless. And I did later on play um, all the nerdy parts. Clive, uh, who was barely seen, um, but wore a very bright green suit at, a, um, at the episode in which... Neil Morrissey nearly got married. Uh, no, Martin Clunes nearly got married. Somebody nearly got married. Uh, <laughs> I, I did eventually have a line or two in um, a series I did called How Do You Want Me, in which I played a, I played a postman. I had about three lines. And it's good for writers to be reminded how, contrary to how you might think at times, it is quite hard to act well. And until you've had a go at it, you don't really know um, until you see the awful truth on screen. <laughs> has, has the role of a writer changed um, over the years from how it was back in the early 90s to how it is now? It has. I mean, the um, oh, I'm going to forget his name. It's, um, but, um, but Bob Larby, who wrote The Good Life and, um, and did lots of fantastic, lots of things. He used to say, and I think it was true, he would post the, he'd write the script, post it off, and then he looked forward to seeing it on the screen at home, watching it. And I thought a bit of me thinks how unprofessional. A bit of me thinks 
that's the way to do it really just sort of and you know, I understand it with the director that they wouldn't change it and their actors they wouldn't change anything unless they really wanted to maybe they rang him up and said we've got half a line here which we think and I did quite like the process of going in spending a week on it and getting it making it better but I, I the excitement actually is terribly sort of anti-social thing to say really is in is the word you know is the screen and the and the word and 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 rehearsing is can be great but it's also slightly if you're not unless you're a great extrovert it can be quite tense you know and so that's changed i think the writers now tend to be on set all the time they're often writer performers i mean i did i two or three years ago i judged a uh, it was in a panel judging a rts comedy award i think sitcom and almost all if not all were shows were writer performers though things like um you know daisy may cooper and and um and it's so it, there's a danger that we we the more stay-at-home writers are being sort of squeezed out by um writer performers and i and i can see why because you know it's just a it's a perfect fusion isn't it you know writing and performing is cuts out any misunderstanding and and you go straight to it um so that's a big change um otherwise I mean, we all, in Britain, we've been waiting for team writing to take off for, you know, 25 years. And it's basically not happened with a couple of exceptions. So that's a change that sort of is constantly waiting to happen and and not because we haven't got the money in British television. Uh, team, uh, rating, team rating us in people around the table and, and writing as yeah, a team. The, yeah, I mean, I did. I did. Well, America, um, America bought um, the rights to Memory Having Badly. And in the um, late 90s, I had a great couple of winters with my burgeoning family then out in California um what uh, th- so they did an American version which went on for a season and a half they did about 30 episodes and I was in the writer's room as as I like to think of it as a kind of a eminence you know grease not quite grease at that stage just just being there kind of a guru I thought and I was paid handsomely to just sit there trying to kind of present you know g- give off a vibe of British comedy while the American writers 10 of them 12 at some points did the work and it and it sort of it didn't work for that for memory badly because i think it was slightly miscast but and you hear and, and down the lot there was roseanne was on it was quite a hey, heyday for sitcoms and third rock from the sun and a bit wow. later um and they'd have i think roseanne had um, i don't think i'm making this up you know had over 20 writers at some stage doing individual scenes going up in groups generally weeping because roseanne had made them made them cry and just so so that's but I think in Britain we 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 hang on doggedly to the to a version of the single writer, even if it's things like Fresh Me, where you have different writers writing episodes and moderating showrunner. But um, but you know, in the end, the job's the same. You try and make yourself laugh, and then hope that'll translate onto the page. You you um, try to not be you know crushed by adverse criticism. Um, <laughs> For sitcoms, particularly, you know, radio times, the most unlikely sources comes at you and grabs you by the throat. So, um, so uh, a lot of things remain the same. I've got a, a message from the original SKB on Twitch. She says, "Love Simon Nye. The Durrells or Durrells uh, is really good and highly recommended." Well, yes, I, I would obviously recommend it, but um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's a, yeah, Durrells. Although Americans, even if they've seen the show pronounce it as Durrell's. Ah, right. Sorry, my bad. I was just going to say, with uh, Men Behaving Badly, because the first two series of it were on ITV, and then they went over to BBC. So 
what was that like going between different channels and did it feel there was a change amongst how you were then making the sitcom afterwards? There was. I mean, there was still, I think the same, although on ITV it was pre-Watershed. So in theory, at least you couldn't, you know, when I went, we went to the BBC, you could swear and, you know, but in, in a sitcom somehow you, you know, or have nudity or one of those things that you, but with a sitcom, you don't really, especially an audience sitcom, you, it feels like you don't swear and you don't, um, you know, why would you do nudity in an audience show? So, so it was essentially, it stayed the same. There was a bit of freedom though. We had a debate about, I remember um, whether we'd say, <clears throat> cock or knob at one point and it felt like as it's bbc <laughs> after nine o'clock we could go with um cock which felt like the stronger medicine these, these kind of after, after we've seen Pete show and you know and you know and things let alone things from this decade you know you think well, how quaint but um you know at the time you didn't want to big audiences you know 10 million people or more families watching you didn't really want to kind of blunder in with too much grown-up you know um language but the big change i mean i i know i was subconsciously still writing for for itv which then was this kind of 26 minute show for a half hour you know with the adverts because we um i wrote all the six episodes for the third series which was on the bbc and it was all you'd think somebody would have told me but it was kind of all two or three minutes short so i um that's why there's quite a few songs in the you know songs on the sofa at the end maybe when they when they when they kind of drunkenly <laughs> sing um, just to kind of make the the, the length really, uh, it's it's quite hard to add add length to a to a show um, because it sort of feels like it has a natural length. But um, that was one way emergency. So it felt a lot. BBC, you know, half hour is a full half hour, and it does make a difference. A BBC drama hour, people don't really comment on it as much as they should. Perhaps is quantifiably different from an ITV say or Sky hour, which is 50, 46 minutes. You know, so it's it's an extra, you know, it's a lot. It's twenty-five percent order. With the like, you no, know, the presence of ad, uh, advert breaks in on ITV shows, did that kind of shift your writing tone because you d didn't have to kind of compensate for the writing breaks on the BBC because there wasn't any. Yeah, no, it was. It was a, it was a help really. I did a drama um, with Timothy Spall called um, Frank Stubbs in the mid nineties and on ITV, and it was and it was really great actually to have those you know those things to work towards the three i think it was three then although every yeah. year it seems seems to bring a new number of you know more breaks but um so i am um, no that is great I and mean, sometimes you think oh no you've interrupted the flow but generally speaking you think thank god we can all have a break now and think about what we've learned and see <laughs> enjoy hopefully um and um yeah because a, a bbc hour now feels to me like a movie really a shortage movie initially whereas you know the other I know Netflix has changed the rules and some things are suddenly, you know, you think I've been watching this and it's an hour and three minutes. And if you're enjoying it, it flies by. Who cares what the length is? What are you, what are your views on, on binge watching? Are you a guy who'll watch something? Because we're talking about Netflix. Do you, do you, are you a guy who, who likes to watch things week on week or will you just hit something big and, and watch all of it in a, in a row? I can see why people do the binge watch. I, I'm quite, I'm quite, um, being a, well, maybe I don't know if you are writers, but being a full-time writer to me is a bit like being a sort of a, a student or when there's an exam coming. You never, I never feel that my time is my own to kind of watch endless TV because I've always got a script I'm late with or or something. So I, so I, I I'm about, I, I'm not very desperate. I, I don't really want to watch two or three things in a in a row. But I and I, I do feel we're missing some of the 
the kind of I don't know if it qualifies for excitement, but of of the the week by week episode release. And I see with is it the undoing that they that they're releasing week by week? You no, know, this new thing with um, Nicole Kidman that, that it's going out. I think it's going out with not you can't binge watch it. And I think that can especially now when most things are bingeable, um, you can watch them one by one. But you know, it's a it's a I I love the being able to you know watch things when you can. And I am old enough to remember when you. You had to sit down at a particular time and watch something, you know. Yeah. 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 Why would you, you know? And you, oh, if you missed the first three minutes, you know, it was all, oh, I don't know what happened. So what's happening now? You know, so it's, we've come a long way and it's generally good. Yeah, I, I, um, I was sort of thinking about sort of uh, when you mentioned that. I remember where they over used to overdub stuff when it was um, in, in the BBC. This was like when I when I was very young. Uh, if you were watching a film like RoboCop or something like that, the BBC would overdub swear words and 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 things like that. Um, which looking back on it now is hilarious because some of yeah, them were so I, bad. I thought they'd because now, now they the. the rather brilliant people they just go they just take the word the sound away don't they and it feels like it's i mean obviously it doesn't always work but um yeah i mean we had childish now seeming arguments about you know you could have certain number of i think we're allowed to say shit but only kind of once or something you know and you think well, well you know when people are getting blown up and murdered you know <laughs> you know, it's after I nine to through, going through the script you're going hmm i'm 10 pages in let's put the shit here <laughs> and it was a bit i mean it still happens to some extent actually there's still a um you know icv if you put something at nine o'clock and i, I we've i've got a series coming out in in um in january and and i'm aware that you know you can't really they don't really want you to say fuck before i mean it's not even logical really but after uh, immediately after nine o'clock they like you to go to the first break and then you can say it um, maybe twice, three times if you're lucky. So, um, so otherwise, you have to say you know immediately to or oh, whatever. So um, I mean, I you know I don't know. I don't. Want, I wouldn't go as far as people say. You know, in the forties they couldn't, they couldn't swear, and all these brilliant Hollywood movies came out, and you know, and the restriction created the genius. But um, I mean, a, a swear swearing is a is a quick fix for a for an ailing scene, you know, or a, or a punchline that's not quite there. So I, I, you know, it is a. It, I can see that it can be uh, swearing can be abused, but on the other hand, it's quite good fun. You know, <laughs> is, is it something gag quite nicely? Is it, yeah, is it something you would use in your own writing? Uh, much or well, uh, yeah, I mean, well, having done the dolls, which is which is very much pre watershed, and you can't swear, and it's from the 1930s when people didn't swear anyway. Um, so now, having done something where we're allowed to express ourselves in a kind of slightly more modern way. You know, um, it's it is a relief because you think, oh, I can actually write the way people talk now, um, as opposed to the past. I mean, I think especially as you get older, it, it, you as a writer, you it's quite nice to have uh, to do some period stuff. You know, and at the moment, broadcasters are saying, oh, we don't want period stuff. But then you find, you know, then you look at them at the schedules and and you see, well, the Crown is doing quite nicely, thank you. And you know, and lots of stuff is really doing well. That's you know pre nineteen you know pre 20th century pre um, 21st century so um we're a bit ambivalent i think but all i know is if you it, it's quite a strain to to stay contemporary you know um unless you're 18 and you live in the moment so i am um, so I, I you know i if they ask me to do a dickens i'll feel really at home you know, <laughs> rather than somebody saying can you just you know, describe what it's like to live in you know modern London. It's, it's so, <laughs> oh. Say, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
we're talking about all the comedies that you've written and the comedy dramas. Um, and we actually mentioned this a little bit on the email because the only real sci-fi thing that I found that you have done was Doctor Who. And um, yeah. and I have to say, I'm not saying it in a way of like, you know, bullshit or anything like that. Um, the episode you wrote is definitely one of my favourites and definitely oh. one, of the, um, one of the nicest episodes I think has been made of the show. And it's not just down to the casting, but it is the writing as well because it is quite snappy. It's quite well thought out. And um, the main question I've got, well, actually it's a two-part question. How was your approach for Doctor Who and how much freedom did you get on your script? I um, was approached by Stephen Moffat, um, who was in charge at the time, who I knew um, quite well from um, just from being on the same, you know, um, circuit. And he, you know, he um, he's connected with Hartswood Films. He's married to Sue Virtue, who now sort of runs it. So I knew, I knew him. So I think and they were asking and they were, they were trying to kind of open it up, out a bit to non-sci-fi people like Richard Curtis did an episode in that series and, and a few other people I, I was I don't know if I was approached towards the end of it you know I was thinking oh who's dropped out then who am I you know some proper sci-fi writers <laughs> wasn't available um I don't think it was quite that but I know it was towards the end of the series I think it was the last two episodes to be filmed and there was a bit of talk of they're really great I had a fantastic experience on it um um but they did say oh, there's no money there's no money left to do crazy stuff you know so we had to so my <laughs> I was delighted I thought it worked well but I might so my monsters were you know old people with um prosthetic tongues that came out so you know cheap cheap cast casting um and um so uh, and there's a few things I did suggest that I, that I did they did say you can't you can't have a swimming pool you can't have a child a swimming pool because <laughs> that'd be really a major expense and we've spent it all on episodes one to eight uh, or six whatever <laughs> Um, but um, Stephen, Stephen, I mean, he is quite proprietorial, and there were a few. I won't deny it. There were a few moments of, you know, is that I to me that I haven't kept up with Doctor Who as I may have said, but but it is it. It was the heyday. It was the first season that Matt Smith was in it. For me, it was the heyday. We all have different heydays. Um, but I um, um, and so I had the, just the best you know cast to write for, and he did do a few little changes that I, I thought was a little bit um, you know. Um, interventionist but i am but he knows you know he knew the show backwards and forwards he's great with a gag um i was blessed with toby jones as playing this dream lord character who's just you know so fantastic and um and but Stephen, you know i i wouldn't have been have done it with, without Stephen moffat who he, he i think i was given the type the the notion that it should be about dreams um you know and he nudged me along the way he knows the you know everything about the two and i didn't really um, i had the thrill of i took my kids down to um because we all watched, it was, a, you know, as people have been nice to say about the Durrells, actually, was, you know, everybody watched Doctor Who, I'm sure they do now, as a family, one of the few shows you could sort of do that with. And um, so when I could go down to the, visit the, see the new TARDIS on the set in Cardiff. Fabulous moment. It was great. I'm sure your kids loved that. They did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, obviously, you said you said you were a translator. What What... What languages? What languages do you know? Um, French and German. Yeah, I, was, I worked for various corporations, so it was all very dry. A Swiss bank and a and a insurance company in the, in the city. So you do things slightly. Well, I, actually, I use the time. I don't think I can. It's too late to offend anybody when I say that Credit Suisse was a sort of a sponsor of my early work because I just you know you sit once you're at a screen you can be doing anything. So I would be doing a little bit of script work as I was rather than translating the annual report of Credit Suisse. <laughs> back in 
1988. So I, so I am. Um, thank you, Swiss banking industry. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know um, they sponsored the show? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Actually, coincidentally or not, since I left Credit Suisse in about 1991, they haven't done quite so well uh, as a financial oh. institution. So, you know, I'm just saying that. You know. no. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I translate you know, really quite dry stuff um, uh, about the, you know, the, the, the annual report or the, a lot of articles actually about, again, this is probably libelous, but about why Credit Suisse, for all the good moral reasons, will not be, um, what's the what's the I've forgotten the words now the jargon for it, but we're not going to let the third world debt. You know, we're going to screw basically the rest of the world into the ground before they and not let them off any debts. That's a mean paraphrase of what I was doing, but um, so I did feel slightly like I was not exactly making the world a better place in my job. So it was great when I could actually hopefully make the nation laugh in a small way and do a job. You know, that that was more more me. So was was the comedy side of things? Was it you were you were always going to be a writer, or did you ever think about doing stand up? Or I didn't know. I'm not. That's really not me. But I, but I did. But I did. Um, uh, I wanna in, in this is a long time ago now because you know I was, I was at school in the sixth form and they did a competition for Barclays Bank. Who must have had money to burn back then? <laughs> and fifty nerdy geeky children, sixth formers, uh, did an essay. I won an essay competition competition and we went around europe europe really expensive hotels two weeks um so i and i'd written this essay about something i don't know what um so i did planted at the back of my, my head was the idea that this this writing business is quite it's quite you know potentially lucrative and quite fun and um it doesn't seem impossible to do so i so that's why you know that was a first and then i like most people in my early 20s i just mucked around and didn't really get down to it but if i'm by my mid-20s i thought yeah i should actually probably sort myself out so i did i wrote a, a, a medieval novel which i can't even bear to read now um which wasn't published and then maybe maybe badly novel so uh, you, I, a, a medieval novel did you say yeah well don't we all do a medieval novel <laughs> hey man i, I, I love <laughs> history i'm a massive fan of history so uh yeah why not? Well, i don't know how history Historically, do you know what? I'm going to probably read it now this week. I have, uh, <laughs> be appalled. Um, yeah, I, I just thought I know I'll do something that's you know the, the advice is only write about what you know. So obviously I write about something that I have no idea about. See how that works. And it turns out they're right. You should write about what you know, and that's why I wrote Memory of Maddie, which actually was quite close to sort of my you know life, the odd pub visit, mates beer struggle to get a girlfriend you want um so that's you know it is true i think you probably want to start in your own world you know if you're writing <laughs> actually you mentioned something earlier that like you used um you're now writing more drama than comedy was that a intentional or just a sort of natural shift in genres no well i think it's good to, as a writer to, or as anybody to do lots of things you know within your field try and um you know keep the, your palette fresh by doing lots of things so i so i have tried to do a bit of everything and i have you know I've translated a play i've tried to i've written a couple recently that might or may not get on um and i've done you know tv like so do a bit of everything um i mean i would like to do i i just love the purity of a half hour comedy show i just love the fact that you can if it's going well you'll write it in a week you'll you'll spend a week planning it plotting it You'll spend a week writing it. It's fresh. It's not, you know, anything longer than that. And it's always that slight. It's a bit more, 
you know, considered it's a bit more chewed over. You probably get more drafts to do, and you can lose the the, the joy of that, you know, of that just the, the the laughter you get from a half hour show. But it is a it is a young person's. It shouldn't be, but it is a young person's um, job. It seems that most of the people that write sitcoms are um, are at the younger end of the spectrum, and they and it and then you're expected to kind of acquire some wisdom as the years go by and and have more serious things to say. I, I can't say I feel particularly serious, but I do like, I do, I mean, I like some of the things you can't do in a, in a half hour that you can do in an hour, which is, you know, progression, sitcoms, you know, famously kind of reset after the every, not so much now, but the original way was you'd, you know, everybody be the same at the end of the episode as they were at the beginning. And, you know, do it again in the next episode. And then maybe there'd be a, slight shift in character over you know four or five seasons if you get the the right you know the chance to do it but um so so it's, it is nice to write a bit of progression but i love the silliness of sitcoms i love the you know i love the daft, daft visual joke you can't really do that many visual jokes in the you know where's the, the crown's visual jokes there aren't any really apart from some very classy you know juxtapositions or you know so i because it's not what they're trying to do but i just love that stupidity i love pantomime you know like those the darkness oh joe you've just mentioned pantomime that reminds me um when i was younger one of my favorite things i used to watch at christmas was the itv panto and you was the writer for four of these pantos which um were fantastic they were just so much fun and i remember even some years ago they showed them again and i was like Wow, yeah, these are still really incredibly funny. Um, so I have to ask, obviously, going from writing a sitcom to writing a panto, is that a different process for you to to create that you know, that kind of work? Well, it's longer, but it's but it's not actually that different. They're quite they're quite allied genres, really, because they're you know they're audience shows. You stand or fall on the you know the, on the reaction, really. You've got uh, and. You know, and also the plot, because plotting is, is all these days. I mean, I, I took it right. I didn't take it seriously enough at the beginning, really. And just sort of thought, oh, witty chat. That'll get me that'll get me through the half hour. But but in, even in a pantomime, you need a plot. But but the plot's already given to you. So that's so in that, in that so you don't need to labor over the, you know, over it. So I. Yeah, I mean, the, the joy of the ITV pantomime, so I'm, you know, was a lot. You, you can't quite replicate that live experience, you know, and we, we got a bit better at it. But um, but I am. Um, but I work with some great people, you know, the Ronnie Corbett's and, you know, and, you know, little incidental pleasures like finding out that Alexander Armstrong can, has a, got a really good, what we know now, um, <laughs> a really good voice, you know, when we didn't know and, and could sing Hold of Gene properly. And so I am, um, you know, some, it was some, you know, some great and, you know, you find out who's really popular. What's um, one, what's one? You know, What's one of your sort of favourite moments you've had in the last sort of, well, in, in your career so far? Um, most memorable moment. It was really nice. I was. Um, it was really nice when Leslie Ash agreed to be in Memory Having Badly because I was always. I was had a bit of a soft spot for Leslie, and um, so that was. Um, so sometimes the casting triumphs are, are, you know, are the things you think of. And I mean, a, a, a good bit of casting really gets you off the hook. So individual moments of people saying yes when you think they might say no. I got a few you know, cast cast members who've said no to things and, I, and you know they're dead to me now so name and shame you turned you turn me down to you know um uh, but i am um, so those are but i mean I, I, sadly i don't really do anecdotes because uh, I, I, I somehow can only do that i can only create a story on the 
on the page, whereas the, the heart of an anecdote is actually taking a bit of real life and really judging it up and enhancing it. Um, um, the trouble with with TV writing is that there's no moment of, uh, you know, you can't tell whether people are enjoying it, you know. So um, now, you, of course, you can after in a way with Twitter and you can, uh, if, you, if you're brave, you can watch the Twitter feed as it goes by. And actually, Durrells has been very, they've been very kind, but I can imagine, you know, especially with sitcoms, well, you tell me, you know, I imagine it's pretty brutal out there sometimes when comedy comes on. Well, the sitcoms at the moment, especially if you look at UK sitcoms, the the only real ones that are on BBC at the moment are not going out on Mrs. Brown's Boys. And it's oh, a shame because there ain't a lot of studio-based sitcoms anymore. I know. And it's not like people aren't... Well, it, I think it is like people aren't keen to do it. But, the you know, really good writers like Graham Linehan's have been a kind of a beacon in, you know, writing, of being keen and saying, I really like doing audience shows. And please, you know, let's do... And he's, he, you know, he's done... He's a bit of a beacon of, you know, of um, success for those... Because they're classy, you know, they're not, you know, not just Father Ted, but since then, you know, um, Count Arthur Strong, I thought was really, really good the way that, you know, it was sort of crazy and, and a bit, you know, and a, you could watch it and think, what exactly are you doing here? But I just, it just was funny, you know, and I, um, but, you know, that's fine. It's dying out, you know, it's, it's dying out the way uh, it might, there might be a revival, but it is as a genre that the, the audience sitcom is kind of dying out the way that I imagine Variety died out or, you know. Black and White Minstrel Show, mm -hmm. so I, I, I am uh, maybe there's a revival on the way, but um, I miss it because I like that you know the genuine sound of laughter in your home. If you can't generate it yourself among your family members or flat sharers, then you might as well hear other people laughing. Mm. Would yeah. you ever consider? I was just going to say, would you ever consider doing a revival of Men Behaving Badly? I know there was a a few years ago. I think there was a charity one. Yeah, the first stand up for cancer, and then you've got, um, I think it was about six years ago. But would you ever consider bringing back Men Behaving Badly, either as a one off special or a series? Well, I mean, there are risks, and BBC have done a lot of um revivals of um, classic sitcoms, um, or did two or three years ago, and I think maybe never again. And I pitched in, I, I, I did a script for a kind of revival of The Good Life, and they didn't do it, or I didn't, I don't know what happened, but I, but I, um. So we shouldn't be doing revivals, you know. I've done, I've I did a revival of Reggie Perrin, which I probably shouldn't have done, but just seemed to be, you know. I love the original, and you think you never know. We might, we might capture some of that magic, and we, I think we did capture some of the magic, but not enough. Um, so I, my default for uh, work is uh, response is yes, I'll, I'll do it. You never know what's going to go well. So I wouldn't say no to a memory badly revival, but um, but it might be. Could be a disaster. There's the there's the exciting possibility, you know. Um, how how badly do you take things when they go badly? <laughs> I can remember a few bad reviews, which is which is you know a bad sign, really. Um, I don't know. It just seems a bit. Um, it takes obviously it takes some of the joy out of it, but it sort of comes to the job, doesn't it? it? Depends who's who's doing the reviewing, really. Um, I feel slightly. I mean, feel slightly worse for for novelists, you know, having been one. And, and my first, I got a really, really bad review from um, Jeanette Winterson for my member having badly novel. And if you, only, if you know Jeanette Winterson, fantastic writer, but, you know, very much not going to enjoy a novel about two men, you know, getting pissed. And so I, I, I did think, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's hard enough to get a good review without it falling into the wrong hands. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, we are paid handsomely, you know, TV writers, 
we should, you know, the, the pain should be that much greater, really, because, you know, the money's good. <laughs> do do you find that obviously because you have you you write comedy um and you do it sort of quite you would do it quite regularly that it took the edge off it slightly that maybe you felt it was more a job than than a passion uh, actually no no i don't think so and i'm more likely to give i'm more likely to be, to be generous or at least generous you know to not judge people because i don't want to i don't want to be seen to be one of those hateful negative people but um no, it has. I mean, generally, um, I find it I admit, it's just that recently, the last couple of years, in fact, during lockdown, when you think, what will I do? I know I'll read. I've got no interest in, in written fiction at the moment because it feels like I can sort of, even though there's obviously, I think, the you know, the best writing, it's a great golden age for television, I think, but the, the most thoughtful and, and incisive and cleverest and uh, writing is, is still in novels, I think. And I, and I But I can't quite um, get my teeth into it. The process again of immer- you know the, the immersing myself in a in a book is is harder once you you create fiction yourself. So I've most people don't feel the same. I think writers that they, they they love to after a busy day of writing making stuff up, they like to spend the evening reading something that somebody else has made up. But I I I can do without that really. <laughs> yeah. And that but that you don't you don't become a better writer. And obviously even at my age you want to kind of be a better writer without experiencing other people's you know worldview do you find yourself kind of like subconsciously um critiquing any books you're you're reading at the time i suppose so i more with tv actually because i, I haven't yeah. written a novel for so long i but i do yeah but you can't help thinking oh i don't know oh, that's oh oh really like a kind of plumber you know that awful oh <laughs> call it a tooth dryer son yeah. oh, what are you thinking? <laughs> so i well, kind of rule Frankie Howe then so I, I I um but I think I you know if it's if it's good maybe there's more of a, div- a fork in the road so if it's something that you really like then it is brilliantly inspiring and you and you feel energized if it's something that you really think is just not quite as good as it should be then you have the pleasures of thinking well I could have written that better uh, <laughs> so so maybe it's win-win you know maybe that's why I quite like watching television still you just think either you either learn or you you get more confident from seeing other people fail is is there anything that you haven't done that you would like to do well i probably shouldn't say this on here on this forum but the one thing i, I wrote some saying the only thing i wouldn't write how hilarious is um is um video games scripts because i thought yeah i'm above all that but of course now it's a, it's a huge world and it's a whole art and it's now rather so I feel stupid for saying that, and I won't ever say that again. Yeah, um, there's some big actors and stuff who do video games and stuff. Oh, yeah, it's the money's great. Yeah, te- you know, it's all—it's always been a marriage of. As you write for television, it's always a marriage of technology and and words. You know, old school sort of values and and you know, maximizing your how well you deal with the what's out there. You know, so um, so you know, I, I won't say that again. No, I'll, I'll do I do. You know, I don't want to write. I, I don't. I suppose I don't really want to write anything serious. I mean, I really don't want to write anything where people go, I was, I was hollowed out and gutted and left. I, I want to make, I want to move people and find, to find it poignant, but I, I, I get another writer in if you want to make somebody feel, um, you know, I don't know. What do, what do people aspire to that proper drama writers? Um, whatever that is, I don't want to do it anyway. You know, make people feel melancholic. I, I want to cheer people up, you know. And if that sounds um, superficial, so be it. Oh. As, you, 
you mentioned about like how like a good um, show can inspire you. So what are your influences when creating stories? Yes, I should have thought of some answers in advance of this, shouldn't I? Um, well, I mean, I don't really work consciously from people I know. I know some people, yeah. you know, liked, and I'm co-writing now with a very good, um, with a Roger, guy called Roger Golby, who's a um, director, really. He's done, a, done some writing of his own, directed um, some episodes of The Dolls and lots of other things. And so I, I, I do feel that that is a quite a good, um, I forgot what your question was, but anyway, I, um, discipline where you, you, somebody else feeds in their, you know, their sort of seriousness or their different concerns. And um, what was your question? What's your insp inspirations? Inspirations and influences. Yeah, so I'm not saying, I mean, he's great, but he's, I wouldn't say he's inspiration, but, but certainly if you collaborate, then you get that um, other people's lived experience filters into your work and then you um so i don't work from people that i've never really consciously taken a person that i know and put them on the screen whereas roger likes to do that starts with a kind of you know somebody he's you know seen and likes to create that but i and i haven't really had i'm not you know particularly sad about it i haven't really had any life well everything changes your life isn't it but i haven't lived such you know such an interesting life that I've, i feel like i must get that on screen it's all slightly, you know, what do I see and want to explore more and what's the, you know, what's the sort of most um, entertaining, you know, thing that people are interested in. So I, I'm, you know, I am, but we, we do, you see the odd thing, you know, I remember over the years, little things like, you know, especially movies, actually, even if you're writing TV, a movie is more likely to inspire you, I think, than TV because they're just longer and they're more, you know, it fills your head because it's the big screen and um so you know things over the years when harry met sally and you know i don't know further back even the graduate i mean you know lots of seminal movies um are likely to inspire me more than um and i've been to see a lot of plays i do i do love the theater although now it's not there you know you sort of think what was that? You know, it's a bit like having uh, putting things in possessions in storage. After a while, you you forget they're there. <laughs> Terrible thing to say because I, I I do want the theatre to come back. But I you know, but live shows are um, <clears throat> a way of cutting through that. You know, a screen is a screen, whereas a real person telling a fantastic joke, being a fantastic character, within you know, in in your vision, you can't quite beat that. So I you know I look for any any old inspiration really. I went to see was it um <clears throat> not recently maybe last year I think a comedy of errors a comedy of errors in Manchester and I honestly never thought that I'd find Shakespeare funny but um yeah it was good one yeah really really it, good it's great if you start with that as I do that kind of slightly philistine view that you know um that if you see a serious play it's going to be a bit of a struggle but I went to see Andrew Scott in um in Hamlet and um two or three years ago and you know took about four hours flying by it was just amazing so you i mean and you'd, you'd hope that in a way britain's you know most amazing um, writer ever with his best play if it's you know with and these brilliant actors so in a way if it didn't work then that would be sad but um but it is and yet you sort of go along thinking slightly dutifully especially with shakespeare, shakespeare but when it works you know it's just amazing you know it's just a lot of effort, a lot of money. <laughs> How has 2020 been for you? Well, I've had my family, I've got four kids and they've all, and they're all sort of grown up now or sort of 19 and up. And, and so having them, they came back from various parts, you know, my daughter was in a gap year and, and it was, so it was, I was guiltily 
I did enjoy it actually the, the first <laughs> six months because they all were forced to come back and spend time with us. Oh, <laughs> um, I know. And uh, and we got a garden, you know. But I'm but it, you know it was all it was all a bit like we well, it's all so talked about, isn't it? We've all kind of said everything, but yeah. but I, I just like the differentness really in a way. I just like the fact that it was it was just like a um, it's like my mum talking about the war, you know. It was it had all that sort of that double-edged sword of thinking well terrible things happen people die people are dying people are really suffering but also something kind of sort of i don't know not special but you know something it was just a it was it's been a momentous year isn't it you know and maybe that has a value yeah yeah yeah. i think there's gonna be a a lot of changes in the country going forward i think yeah yeah and we and we kind of you know there were lots of there were silver linings at the time some of them turned out to not be so much the whole eco thing people not flying um seem to be people reading more and you know not me but um those seem like good things um um so um i don't know and i also got some got some good um sign some signs there's a sign in the window nearby where i live in um north london saying actually not funny it's rather chilling but somebody written obviously furious that their neighbor had been breaking quarantine rules and saying x upstairs has had a man upstairs who's not in her thing. So it was just a whole things that wouldn't have happened, you know, months before were suddenly bursting out all over the place. You know, so, um, you know, if you want, if the, if you want to live in interesting times, then we can tick that box. Certainly. <laughs> and I thought our politics was getting very interesting and then COVID hits and I was just like, wow. Well, <laughs> yeah, it seems all of a piece, doesn't it? This year with Trump and everything, uh-huh. um, it all seems like a whole, part of uh you know and if if we do manage to heal the world by the end of the year then that feels like kicking out trump there's a nice sort of yeah he's, he's not going with it without kicking and screaming is he he's uh <laughs> I've, never, I've never i've never seen him as a more delusional man in my entire life it's absolutely insane it's actually farcical it is i i mean if anybody I would pay to drag him out of the White House by the hair. I really would. You know, I mean, <laughs> fall off oh, if there's a competition, he wouldn't, <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't. Yeah, the hair would come first. If there was a competition, I would. I would pay good money to um, do that. But um, I heard like there was in the Georgia recount, it actually increased uh, Biden's vote. <laughs> it's just the court cases man it's just like it's absolutely yeah. mental like i've wor- i've worked in fraud for like 14 years of my life uh, and 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 th- and it's just like the stuff that they're coming off with and they're, they're expecting that to go to court and i'm like i i i wouldn't i wouldn't even run that i wouldn't even have a second glance yeah. of that if that came past my <laughs> desk and it's just like yeah we're gonna take this to the supreme court and i'm just like wow you're absolutely bonkers but Oh yeah, yeah. We've never lived in such an amazing, in in such interesting times. You have to admit the most interesting parts of all this, even though you've got that. First thing is that Rudy Giuliani. I think that has got to be the best character of 2020. When you see, do you see him um, leaking his hair, leaking? uh, Yeah, he dyed his hair literally. It must have been like an hour before the press conference. And as he's there, just you see these dabs of sweat going down. And as he's looking to the camera, it's like. It makes you shit yourself. I, uh, it looks terrifying. <laughs> I should have enjoyed that moment more, but I, but I, I was too mesmerised by the what he was saying. I mean, that that was the only thing that spoiled it at the moment. That he was, you know, the garbage come out of his mouth was was unfortunately distracted even from the joys of seeing his head melt. But you know, I, 
No, I, I, I think his head was melting well yeah, before this hair was going. Like... Business was very good. No, there's been lots of pleasures. Well, you know, now that there's been a happy ending so far, then then we can all we can laugh about it. But you know, almost not. Well, that's it's it, just like, it? It's things like that happening. You're thinking, someone, how did that happen? It sounds like something straight out of a comedy. Yeah, <laughs> and it's happening in real life. It's just. It's just the, the the American elect, uh, electoral system is, is is bonkers in in general. You know, it, it it was made for a time when there was horse and carts, and you know that's that's the, what what blows my mind about American uh, election uh, elections is that there's a three month gap before they get into power, and the reason that's there is because back in the day they you know it would take long for messages to get to other places and for things to get there oh, so well, it took it took it's some time especially in a long period you know a big country and you know but they haven't changed it uh the electoral college is is mad as well um so it's just it's something that they've and that kind of yeah so it could be you know it could be literally like it was close enough and maybe it's it's not well i suppose it's true of britain technically you could have one you know one constituency where which swings either way, but you know, to a couple in Florida next election, not going to the polls or not going to the polls, you know, could swing the whole thing. Cause you know, um, but you know, let's live with um, that kind of excitement slash danger. <laughs> um, because, you know, lots of things in the world, I suppose are on a knife edge, but anyway. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. It's hard to write out politics. And, and, and maybe that's why there isn't much on, you know, there actually never has been about British politics, is it? It's, we've, you know, honourable exceptions like the thick of it. Um, there's not really, well, I think I'm probably missing whole loads of shows now that have dealt very coherently with the political situation. But part of the fact that... I'd say was Yes Prime Minister. Oh, yeah, I yeah. love that. Love that. Yeah, and apparently it holds up as well. I, it's been on, you know, it's, it's always on the radio, isn't it? And, and um, which is nice to... Nice to know, really, that you can, um, you know, you can still the shows from you know fifty, sixty years ago still hit the, you know, hit the nail. Um, yeah. you know, but I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not a political writer, so I, I do I leave other people to be to be angry on my behalf. Is is it something you would you, you would use as material for for something something you would write because it is at this moment quite quite farcical? Is 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 it, do you do you watch it and go, oh, that's gold? I could use that. I don't know. I think I'm too. In the case of Trump, I am too up, upset by him, and I don't. I don't normally. Am. I mean, even Boris Johnson. I've, I'm. I'm. You know, I know he's done to, to my mind terrible to me and my clan. You know, my North London. You know, so-called. You know, cultural elite. Ha uh-huh. ha. You know, he, he's a he's a enormous figure of hate, and I, I can't. I've got no. I've got no hate left really after the Trump um, business. But I. But I do. So, but I don't feel. No, other people can do that. I, I mean, I think also the. I mean, the the arguments are so complex, really. I, you know, I, 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 some things like Brexit to me are very simple. But I, but I, once you start writing up politics, I, I always want to kind of. I do want to give the other side a, a second. You know, I want to be a little bit um, even-handed, and that's death to comedy, really even-handedness. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah, I, yeah. it's not. I know it works. That's what drama is. You know, pit one person against the other. But I, there's to me, there's so much else to write about that is more interesting and more more relevant to people's lives you know and um so i'm doing something about bereavement which is coming out in um january and that's you know that's and i hope it i'm not saying it's the comedy side of bereavement but it is certainly it shows the light and dark that happens you know when a loved one dies it's not you know we do have a great capacity for finding the light and looking for the light so um that seems to me like the kind of thing which is about life as it's lived um and let's see more of it you know um as long as we make sure we don't just 
bore or uh, make everybody sad. You know? But I think that's what I think what British comedy is quite good at doing um, now and again. Well, actually, quite a lot is having you'll have an extremely funny uh, series. Um, uh, Blackadder is a is is a yeah. prime example of this, where it's like it's just super funny, and then they just have this amazingly poignant moment in yeah. it that sort of it, it cuts through, and it's because of that comedy that makes it so much deeper, makes it so 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 much yeah. more sort of kind of it affects you, it makes you, you know it upsets you because you've got you've had this 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 like pure joy throughout, and then suddenly it just cuts to this sort of darkness, and you're just like, I wasn't expecting that. And it's more real in a way. Yeah, no, I mean the, the famous, you know, going over the top at the end of the fourth series of um, Blackadder is is a case in point. But I, I did hear somebody, I may be being unfair to Danny Baker. I think it was he said it, he thought it was mawkish or didn't apologize to him if it was. But 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 I mean, you can take the view that comedy should is always un, is always sullied by somebody taking a rather sort of um, looking removing themselves from it and saying oh my god what are we doing here whereas the joys of comedy are being among you know the immediacy of the characters but i mean i think most people would would agree that it's just great because it's it's so hard to do to make people laugh and then suddenly only fools and horse, horses did it with uh with, with granddad yes yeah yeah I mean, just and and not and not really quite delicately done and and just seeing real people you know doing um living their life you know uh, but you've got to earn it by they've got to make you laugh first before you can kind of wade in with the uh, um y- y- you know y- y- the emotion has to be sort of why does it have to be earned anyway it's better if you feel you've you've spent you know five years laughing with them and then you can really then you suddenly think oh my god it's, it's not just a comedy show it's something bigger than that yeah and there was all a... of them do it because it's like dad's army had some really good moments yeah. and uh, absolutely yeah and it's just you know and i think they, they, they we do it very well it's just sort of like and it's unexpected but it, it hits hard and um that's you know i think it's true and I, and I love american comedy so i'm not really making a big point here but but some somehow there's something so efficient about american right comedy writing that you the, and they, and obviously they they also major on you know sentiment and moments in friends. I love friends, you know, and, and they do and they do, but it's slightly more plugged, you know, slightly more switched on. Yeah, it feels slightly more calculated in, in American um, comedies than it does in the best of the British ones, where they manage to suddenly the humanity sort of you know suddenly. I'll, I'll tell you one American, and it's not it's not a sick, it's a cartoon. Uh, um, and I, I do you, have you heard of Rick and Morty before? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, while it's a kind of haven't seen it for a while. Though. It's, it's 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 like uh, it's on. Uh, well, it was on Netflix, but is it on Channel Four now? Uh, they, it's still on Netflix as well. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So it's basically it's a it's a it's an Adult Swim one, and it, it's you know Dan Harmon and um, other guy. What's this called? Uh, Jojo. You're going- Joe. Joe, Joe, I just had it in my head. As soon as you said my name, I completely... Oh, anyway, it'll, it'll, it'll Justin go. Justin Yes, that's it. Justin Broyden. Um, and it is ridiculous. The whole the whole thing is absolutely just bonkers uh, and, and, and hilarious. But they have... And, and, and they have this sort of thing, and they do it maybe once every season. Not even that, you know. There's maybe... They just have one episode, which is just so 
like there's a part in it where uh, an example uh the rick episode where he is basically uh in love with a uh, a virus that sort of uh is, is it a virus basically he's in love with a virus it's that a, um a hive mind a hive mind that takes over a planet uh and you know basically they do loads of drugs and they do all this weird sex stuff and it's it's all sort of completely insane but yeah. she leaves him and it's got this really they use music so well like they have an amazing song and she writes him basically a love letter saying why she's leaving and there's a, just a moment where he is sort of sat in the garage and he's going to commit suicide and because he's drunk the, the the beam that he's going to kill himself with he falls his head falls down and it doesn't hit him but it's just like it's the point where you get yeah. this, this like under there's this underlying stuff and it hits you really hard because yeah. the music's good uh the writings is so on point and it's just it's such an amazing um thing. Yeah. and it, they, you know like, i i understand exactly what you're saying about american comedy because you know even the sort of more sad moments are what you said quite calculated but this, you know, Rick and Morty is something where they just use, they use music, they use timing, they use, you know, uh, everything yeah. just to really hit you well, hard. You they, yeah, that they want to say something. Funny. I mean, it's true of BoJack Horseman as well. Oh, BoJack Horseman! Oh, yeah. Awesome. The so episode good. where he where he talks at his at his mother's funeral, and that's you know, and apart from being a comedy tour de force, de force it is it is a um, you know, it, that kind of you can tell that was written from a a point of view of you know some kind of experience that he that was very personal yeah Um, saying that though there was a one the series before where um you see a lot in his mind like you see obviously all the arguments all the thoughts he's having in his head uh we see all the paranoia all the anxiety and in some ways it's a very funny episode in other ways it's it's very upsetting to watch as well especially when you see the arguments with his mum you see um literally his whole sanity being torn apart and it's just a bit when um he goes out, he's in his car, and he's having all his thoughts like, oh, you stupid piece of shit, why did you do that? Why did you upset these yeah. people? Oh, they'll be better off about you. And then when he gets back home, he goes, uh, oh, did you get the bread? Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, you underestimate American comedy at your peril, really, because, I mean, they do everything, so, you know, so, well, there's a lot of it, you know, there's more of it, so there's bound to be more um, at each end of the kind of ambition, you know, spectrum of ambition, there's some amazing things. And, but, but you know, and they're, and maybe it's, I don't know if it's true, but it feels like with animation, they got, they can take more risks because I don't know. I imagine that the viewing figures, because it's all down to, you know, they live or die by the numbers of people watching, that there's a kind of more committed body of people watching animation. So they either, they're either there or not. So you, you can kind of have, take some risks, have some fun. Yeah. Um, you don't want to do that with Big Bang Theory because they, you know, they, they, <laughs> did, you, did you like Big Bang Theory? I, I was talking about it today, actually. I don't know had a nerdy moment i looked up the viewing figures and and it's and it happened with seinfeld as well which i loved i love both of them i did like them at first but the more and i'm not anti-populist i love i'd love to have more people watching them the more people watched the worse it got it seemed to me and and that felt like it was true of seinfeld as well which i felt was they became obsessed with again who am i to criticize these geniuses but you know that it it's hard not to do it but it became slightly um in love with its in case of seinfeld in love with its own plotting so I was never interested in the plotting really because it felt like I just wanted to see these guys hanging out um, and that people like intricate plotting. And that I think that's what, why people maybe watch that in, you know, unheard of numbers and millions. And I think maybe the same is true of Big Bang Theory, that something it lost, it lost its interest in the people and it became more of a, I don't know, more of a 
gag fest or something. Yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed it. You know, it was mindless and, you know, it was just good to have a sort of kind of a nerdy sort of yeah. uh, thing because there was a lot of references, you know, and you're just like, yeah, and my girlfriend who's not a, who's not a nerd in any way, shape or form, she, she loved Sheldon and stuff. Yeah, my mother, who's yeah. from, my mother's from Oxford and uh, she's proper posh and she loves it because she thinks I remind her of Sheldon and stuff. So she <laughs> oh, that's, that's nice. Yeah, and I was like, thanks, mom. <laughs> <laughs> Just you want like, to be identified with Sheldon, or yeah. I was kind of thinking yeah. maybe a Leonard. I'm potentially a Leonard. Yeah, Leonard. maybe there's no good people to identify be identified within that show. Really, yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. You... What am I saying? That you know they're the future, um, you know, Nobel Prize winners. But um, <laughs> no, it's it's a funny show. But you know, but but sometimes when it becomes a it becomes a like a phenomenon in terms of viewing figures, you do think, well, that's interesting that they've you know that's really taken off and. What is it appealing to? Yeah, as always, we we don't know why things are successes, and that's where it should be. I, I still like a minimal comedy. I like something that's very casual, very laid back. Yeah. Kirby Enthusiasm is definitely one of the better ones for that because that's Larry David, co-creator of Seinfeld. He literally just went to HBO and said, "Look, I've got an idea about a show. It's just going to be me in my house. We're going to yeah. do ten episodes of this," and they're like. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, I'm and gonna be really comedy. mean and horrible to everybody, and and, oh. and you know, yeah, and they'll they don't mind. No, I agree. I, every, my, one of my favorites is everybody, especially if you've got if you've had kids. You know, everybody loves Raymond. Very simple, one plot, um, maybe four or five scenes, really unusual, and just beautifully drawn. You know, and a, again, a, a kind of ca- uh, you know stand-up comedian who can't really act in the central role, but is just perfect for the part. You know. Um, so I actually that's a bit unfair. You can act, but but you know, but he's not. That's not his big but, thing. No, he, but that was a big thing in the nineties. There was a lot of comedy actors, a lot of stand-up actors that were doing that. They were doing sitcoms, yeah. um, especially when you look name, at like Seinfeld. You know, I know what's. What do you want your character to be called? I know my name. <laughs> and, uh, or or when a, you had characters, or you had a show that was named after the person who created it. But yeah. they didn't play that character. That that wasn't the name of the character. That always confused me. Did when that, you see a show like that? So I, I never got Seinfeld. There was a few sitcoms like that. Yeah. I mean the um, I mean the Bill Cosby show was that. I know we can't really talk about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> way, but, um, no, he, he was um, Bill Huxtable. Yeah, but wasn't it called the Cosby Show? It was the Cosby, was Cosby Show. The Cosby yeah. Show. So that's, yeah. Your, that's your point, mate, isn't it? That, that yeah. It's, not, it's just weird. There. So it's called by a character's name who. Yeah, it's by the guy who created it, but yeah. it's obviously the the main guy who obviously that's his real name, Bill Cosby. Yeah, but he's playing a character called Bill Huxtable. So would it be the Huxtable Show? Yeah, or that's if it's the Cosby Show. Should... Would you have Bill Cosby introducing it or something? We should email them. So they got that. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I don't think they want to touch that one at all. No, really. I, know <laughs> I know. I know that's a. Anyway, um... have you have you ever watched The Good Place? I have, yeah. I mean, it's a, talk about high concept. I mean, that's you know, yeah. I've, yeah, I've quite enjoyed it. I, do, I wonder where they go. Haven't they done it? It's been a big. It's hit. finished. Oh uh, really? I must keep. Yeah, up. they're basically getting finished with everyone died. Fine again, and but I thought it was just <laughs> the, the See, genius. Yeah, man. Like, thanks for that, man. I have not watched it. The genius in the writing was in like the fact it was like a study on philosophy yeah. and morality, but disguised as like you know a twenty-minute sitcom, and I thought the. The yeah, way they blended true. that together, yeah. and it was very expensive looking. I remember thinking, "Oh, that's oh, all those extras and that whole big world they hold." They've created. Yeah. Um, there's some of those like the um, oh god, what the new Armando Iannucci um, sitcom, which um, something oh, fun, something oh. fun, 
um, which is I think is is really good, you know, and and it's got a lot of money, of Netflix money, I think. So, um, you know, I I love that if you can film it, then have a show with a lot of ambition. If you can't, you know, in all due respect to the BBC, you're not going to be able to film a spaceship properly. Again, I mean, I know you can do a little room that you can like you can do in. Yeah, but you but you can't, you know. So you might as well make it smaller and make, yeah, make it more immediate and do a flat, do a house, do a you know, do a you know, Worthing Town Hall or whatever you know. Dad's army said it. So um, yeah, work with whatever the you know, the limits of the resources. Do you like uh, one of my sort of uh, comedy I really like is um, uh, Modern Modern Family. Yeah, that's been. I've sort of bowed out. But we used to watch that as a family as well, and, and think, why aren't we that funny? But, um, <laughs> in fact, Steve Levitan, who wrote, um, who did um, Modern Family, one of the co-creators, was um, take was brought on to rescue the American men behaving badly. And I was there when he was there, struggling with this ailing sitcom. I managed to get onto a second. He took over in the second year, and um, I know in the, during the first year because there was a big dispute between the actors and the writers, and and it felt like. Um, Oh, he's really not enjoying this, is he? He's really going to. He really wants to do another show, and and sure enough, he came up with Modern Family, which is yeah, it's beautifully put together. And uh, again, I think you know, it's hard to make them sustain. I think it didn't last, but you know, maybe the Amer- probably the American shows is that they have to go on um, beyond their natural time. I think you know. Do do and you? Some, sorry, my apologies. Carry some, on. Some some make it again. I think Friends are with nine or ten years seasons. That I think that did. You know, had a bit of a wobble, but it made it to the end. Whereas others, you can see the the strain. You know, um, by season six. Well, like the what did you think of the American Office? I loved I loved it, and I was watching um, really good. But again, but you see the kind of the life. Maybe it's like it echoes the human life. You know, you it's got, you know, it's got seven great years, then it's hard to sustain it. And um, no, I I loved it, and I I loved the the, the British one as well. But I I I love the way it was a real kind of case in point of looking at you know the way our different nations comedy sort of works the, the british one shorter crueler perhaps truer to life you could argue um um and the american one a bit more sentimental but also really sort of sort of had a charm to it that perhaps the british one didn't have um yeah. i thought it sort of uh it died it started to die off a fair bit once steve carell left did uh, I, and i watched a bit of season eight and i thought no i can't it's not quite you know i think that you panic don't you if, if your main actor leaves and you think what well, we need to just throw some stuff at it but but i i you know i know what and i'm sure you know um that they might have they might have it might have worked you know because it can work to to um not just because harry enfield left memory badly but sometimes a cast change can can really help you know yeah. But, well, remember, like those spooks in the third season, they compl- they killed off all the, the three main cast members, and right. then replaced them and with that like, in season four, and it kept going for about another six or seven seasons. It's like the Crown; everybody dead after yeah. the second end of the second series. Exactly. <laughs> um, suddenly, yeah, no, I, I think it can. Yeah, but maybe people, obviously, it's a good. I mean, it's good for writers to think that they're more important than the actors, um, or at least they, you know, you can replace an actor. Um, when most people think the opposite is true, and maybe they're right, you know, you can get any you know, writer anywhere, but the actor's face is always what you know, is is the. Um, yeah. I was just going to say because talking about um, like again, like with the US remakes of shows, um, when they tried to take uh, Red Dwarf over to America, they had Robert Llewellyn replace um, basically playing Crichton again. When yeah. they tried doing IT Crowd, they had Richard Arwadi back as Moss. When you were taking Men Behaving Badly 
did you ever consider taking someone from the original cast and taking them to America? Well, we sold, we, um, Beryl Virtue and I, producer, you know, so Beryl, you know, to mention her again, had, had experience with selling. She was the only person who'd done it in Britain, selling Steptoe and Son and To Let Us Do Part successfully. So she knew how to do it. And her way, and her way of doing it was to find the best company in America that can do that. In this case, Carsey Werner, who'd had lots of great hits with Sybil and, you know, Taxi and, um, and let them do it. You know, and I wouldn't have gone over to say, except they had to put this sort of crisis of um, problem on the show. So I, so I went. Otherwise, we just we had our, you know, Beryl and I had our weekend at the Beverly Hills Hotel and and sort of waved them off and said, keep the checks coming. Um, so and that is a way to do it, if, it because it really, um, well, it's one way of doing it. And I think that's sort of the way Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant did it. And they, they sort of they picked the the show right that you know thingy, um, Daniels, and they and they said well you know your country you know we've given our you know briefings they didn't i didn't really talk to the american showrunner um he was a nice guy and he just took the scripts and he knew that they had to do it their their way and the fact they didn't work i think was partly down to casting they weren't they weren't bad the two guys really but um, but they ron eldard and um um name is me, but i but i you know but they it just didn't somehow the chemistry didn't quite work because it's always a you never know, do you? Um, and the things that they, they, the American cast, maybe they're just being nice to me, but they said you can do things in the British show that you, in terms of, you know, what you say that we can't do on mainstream NBC, you know, um, network. And they, I think they felt that they were stuck, um, you know, up to a limit. The thing that like we did in Memory Valley, like he, he um, Dorothy has her appendix out and Gary, eats it essentially or nibbles it <laughs> and and now and, now, and they, they said we couldn't do that on American television and I thought well I thought why not that seems to be a perfectly normal thing to do in a comedy and they've done far worse you know the American comedies you know gross out comedy but they tend to be in films rather than on you know the anyway that's back in the day now all these arguments seem kind of slightly quaint with you know Netflix and and all um so um but but there are there are cultural differences that really they're hard to um, they're hard to second guess, and and things like coupling that I know the aforementioned Stephen Moffat went out and did an American version and was involved in it very much, and there I think was writing it, and that kind of that did run into problems of I don't know of taste and of um, we do things differently, and um, so it's you really are better off trusting um, the people in their own sort of creative community. Um, so I'll, I'll have one final question before uh we we leave for tonight um what what would your advice be for uh, a budding sort of comedy writer uh to do to sort of get himself uh in in the proverbial door foot in the proverbial door yeah well it seems like there are two ways in there's the, the old the old-fashioned way that, that kind of worked in my day where you you just wrote something and you um sent off you know it can be that simple still production tv productions companies and the bbc will still read material sent on spec the other way is which is you know i'm not telling you things you don't know what it is is to you know perform it yourself get it or get people that you know to put on and, and record it and put it on you know youtube or something and that seems to be a good way i mean i i've, I've started a um production company with um uh, with, with a sort of a uh 
with a kind of open mind, but we we haven't actually used any of that kind of you know the the, the TikToks and the and the and the YouTube approach because it feels like that's you know it's it's harder to do it that way than than seeing reading something on the page and thinking this will work, you know. Um, that there's there's more ways in, there's more outlets. The problem is there are more people pitching. There's more production companies than ever. Uh, it's a crowded world out there. Um, so I don't know whether it it's easier now than it was. It feels like it, it probably is if you've got the energy because there's so many channels to try. Do you think because of the proliferation of social media and different platforms that it's uh, that it's oversaturated maybe? Yeah, well, I do, but I, but I'm not. It's not for me um, because I, you know, to say let's all agree to make less television, you know, um, especially drama. Actually, that it's all changed since I since the 90s when sitcoms were the made the way to make, you know, for anybody that wants to make a fortune, uh, to just write a sitcom, you know, and make a sitcom. Um, now it's uh, hour-long drama is the sort of the way. The, that's where the money, you know, the money is for what it's worth. Um, so there's more people trying to get those elusive, you know, big drama hits away. But um, I mean, if, in terms of writing, I mean, I can only give the sort of rather pat sounding advice, which is just try and enjoy the process because, you know, there's always a good chance it won't get on. I always write, you know, I, I still write, you know, two scripts for every one I get on if, if I'm lucky. So for God's sake, enjoy doing it because otherwise you might end up um, hating what you've done. And not getting it on, you know, you might as well enjoy half of it. That said, it's not easy, you know. And if that's why I write, like writing comedy, because I don't sit around chuckling at my own genius, but I do. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I rarely show any, but because it's it's just there's a quick response, you know. If you're writing drama, then you don't get any enjoyment out of it until you get something on. Whereas with comedy, at least you can have a laugh along the way. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, uh, well, we'll leave it there then. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Really, really, really interesting. Thanks. And thank you thanks. much, so much for for your time tonight. Um, so thank for you. myself, I've been Matt Geary. Uh, with me tonight has been Peter Ray Allison. Look after each other, everyone. John Joe Cosgrove. Take care all. See you soon. And Simon Nye. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.